podcast world. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and joining me today, we have Sarah Alain. Hello, good to be back. Yes, welcome back, Sarah. So today we are talking to a passion to profitability expert, an author and business coach, Mrs. Georgina Terry Cohen. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's excellent to have you here as well. So, as I told you before we started, right, I like to start at the beginning, but not too far at the beginning. I mean, I don't know where you're born and everything. I know, obviously, you're from London. I am. South London in the house. All right, all right, all right, bruv. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know you were, you're the daughter of a African father, a West African father yes. from Sierra Leone, right? Yeah, Sierra Leone, <laughs> right. And a Trinidadian mother. Yes. So you have immigrant parents growing up in London. Yep. You know, they say that immigrants tend to work harder than everybody else, right? And they tend to be a little strict on their children and everything. What was that like? Yeah, my parents were were quite strict. They had very structured way of bringing us up. Uh, in our household, from small, we were told we were going to university. And so in my head, I always thought, well, everybody went to university because in our house, okay, you're going to primary school, you're going to secondary school and you'll go to university. And my best friend at school at the time, when we turned 16 and she said, I'm leaving school. And I said, but you haven't even gone to sixth form yet. And, and what about university? And she's like, but you don't have to go. And I'm like, you don't have to go. <laughs> so from, from very early on, my parents built us with these beliefs and philosophies that I realise now really strengthened us. You know, one of the main ones, I'm talking about this quite a lot, is that they told us from small that the only limitation was in our minds and we could be anything, anything, anything we wanted in this world. And again, they told us so young that you didn't disbelieve it, you just went along with it until I remember I got to my early 20s and my, one of my sister's friends, Janine, she um, went to Oxford University and she came to the house and my sister said, Gina, come and speak to her. Gina doesn't know what she wants to do. And I, so I went, what do you mean you don't want to do, know what to do? You've just finished Oxford University with a first. <laughs> you have a key to the world. What do you mean you don't know what to do? So I sat with her for a little while. And then it dawned on me, oh, people don't know that they can be and do anything. I thought everybody knew that because in our household, you know, my youngest sister, Michelle, she um, wanted to be a barrister at five. She was a barrister at 24. So in our household, you say you want to do something and then you just kind of get on with it. And so it was really kind of a shock to realise, oh, people, people don't know this. But is there room to change your mind in, there, in that household? Though? Maybe not as much. <laughs> and my, my parents were, were quite strict, you know, like even up to 19, you know, I went to parties. My dad would come and pick me up at 12 o'clock. So, yeah, I grew up in what I would class a very black and white household. What was right was right. What was wrong, what was wrong. And there was, there was actually nothing in between that. And I must admit, it's only really when I came to Trinidad, being away from my family and being in a completely different environment, that I realised that I could, I started to maybe kind of self-analyse myself and kind of unbundle and say, okay, this oh, I can keep this. This, I should have got rid of that when I was five. And then eventually I got to a place where I said, I don't see grey, I see beautiful colour. And that's kind of where I, I live now. 
Oh, that's that's beautiful. That's a really nice picture. Now, I wanted to start with your parents and everything because I understand your parents were career people, right? Very mm-hmm. career-oriented people. Yes. And so were mine, and I would say so were Zara's, right? Yeah, definitely. All right, so... Usually for me, I don't know about your households, but usually for me, if you want to get, especially with among all the other children in your house, you want to get attention, you have to bring them a good report card. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you want positive attention, you bring them a good report yes. card. That's interesting. So I know when you were 16, mm. you decided you want to be pursue accounting. Yes. And right now, accountants are so prevalent, but back then you thought that, Mainly men did accounting? At that time, I was 16, so we're talking 34. <laughs> I, I'm okay. I, you know what? Age is nothing. I turned 50 this year and I'm very happy to be Congratulations. Different. Thank you. So yeah, at that time, there weren't many women in the profession. It was male dominated. And I'm like, well, okay, I like to be different. Even from young, what a man can do or a boy can do, I can do it too. And I don't see why I can't. So that was one of the reasons I went into accounting. But were you passionate about it though? It was a career fair, actually. I didn't, I, before the career fair, I hadn't known anything about accounting. But there was a career fair. There was a, a, a lady there who was talking about the profession. And I don't know, there was something about it that she started talking. And it wasn't so much about being an accountant per se. What drew me to it was that regardless of the economic climate, you would always have a job. The fact there was not many um, women at the time. The fact that, it didn't have to be industry specific. You could work in any industry. And also the fact that you could also work for yourself. So I felt like it was a profession that had a lot of flexibility. So it wasn't the fact of what it was actually going to do. It's, it was kind of what it, what it represented. And I thought, oh, I like that. I like the varied nature. I like the fact that there seemed to all these different components fitted in quite well. And so then I went and started to pursue and look into it a bit more. Because there were different associations and everything. And I finally decided on the one that I wanted to, to join. Okay. So you worked at places like The Economist, mm. Pricewaterhouse, yeah. and French Connection, right? And French Connection. <laughs> <laughs> the clothing company? Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> so and this is all in London? All in London, yes. All right. So how was that experience and how did you transition across to Trinidad? So I started at The Economist and that was lucky because I did a summer job before going to university. And then when I finished, they then hired me back into a full-time job. So that worked out really well. Now, The Economist was a really great place to work. And I realise now, looking back, it's a great pla- would have been a great place to work because you got older because it had really good benefits. You know, if you had kids, take time off and come back after a while. The pension was really good and everything. Um, but I was there in my 20s. <laughs> But, you know, at the time, you know, they paid for all my studying and everything. And I was able to get promoted the times I was there. And one of the great best jobs I had was um, I was a property accountant. So the economist then, I'm not sure about now, had property, owned properties in London. And I worked with the company secretary managing the properties. And he was a really lovely guy. His name was Patrick Bresnan and a very old English gentleman, but really, really kind and he would have a lot of lunches because then the, the economists had dining rooms on the 14th floor. Oh, the dining rooms? Yeah, dining rooms. That's where the executive sat and you had the dining rooms and, you know, what do you call them, sommelier and all that. It was really, really, you know. Okay. So I was thinking about this little 23-year-old and he, Patrick was great because he would invite me to the lunches with the lawyers and the, and the tenants and, oh, and the bankers and all that. So it was really fantastic. That was a great job. And then... 
after I qualified, I wanted to, well, of course, get promoted. But again, remember I said it's, it was a really good job. It, it was a little bit older. So there were a lot of people who were a bit older than me in the, the next kind of tier up who were kind of married and kind of settled and they were set. And I suppose also looking back now, I remember I decided to leave and it took me about six months, about six months to get an, another job. Uh, I didn't leave the company. I was looking, I should say. But what was interesting, growing up in London, I never really encountered a lot of racism. Um, even people assume that's you know it's coming out of the walls. But you're on the east side, right? So I mean, south, they have south, south London. But there are more more black people on that side, no? There are, but I went I went to predominantly white school and stuff. But um, people just assume London's all racist. But we didn't really encounter much. But my parents also are not people that kind of look for that. So we didn't grow up looking for it. You know, you just oh, you just kind of roll on. But I remember when I was looking to look for a new job, I did encounter some blatant. And I remember one interview I went for, this guy was doodling on my CV and was asking me these really, these just weird questions. He doodled on your CV? Yeah. And he had, he had these, asked me some really weird questions and even his colleague was like, what? so I remember thinking this close to walking out and I was like, but no, that's what you want me to do. And I was thrown because it's not something I was accustomed to. And then another interview I went to was for a company. I can't again say. And I had the first interview with the guy and, and we got on really well. It was an Irish guy. I got on really, really well. And he said, I think I'll introduce you to the managing director. Well, the managing director came in and just nearly jumped out of his skin. And then he started asking me all these questions. And the guy, I've asked all that already. He goes, well, she might say something else. And then the next day, the agency called me and said, oh, they said, you're, you're too young. Now, my oh, age is on my, was on my CV, right? Now, my name is Georgina Terry, you know. It sounds like a very English name. I mean, I wouldn't mean by that, a very sort of white name. And so a lot of times I'd go to interviews and people would come out looking for Georgina Terry and they would go back in and come back out and go back in and come back out and go back in. And eventually I'd say Georgina Terry. And so there was a time when, especially after that second interview, I remember being so upset. I was like, but you want me to change something that I can't change. And I don't want to change that. I don't see why I have to change that. And I remember being so demoralized and upset and angry and and that must have lasted for maybe a couple of weeks and then I said you know what I'm keeping going somebody out there is gonna see me see me for who I am and what I can do and then eventually I landed the position um, at French Connection there you go big up to French Connection yeah come sponsor the podcast French (laughs) Connection (laughs) (laughs) all right so me still and tell us how you got to Trinidad so then so then French Connection for a little while. And then after being there, I decided I wanted to move on. The role wasn't quite a good fit of what I was looking for. I thought it might take me another six months. So I started looking. And then I got an interview with what was then Cooper's. At Price Coopers, right? Cooper's and I brand. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure I really want this job. But I'll go for the practice, the interview practice. <laughs> <laughs> So I went and I met the, the guy who was interviewing me and we're talking and then he says, but you can do a lot more than this, can't you? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he said, okay. So like I say, you know, the, the piece of paper, he turned it over on the, on the, so it was blank. And he said, okay, what can you do? And he, we just started writing and talking and writing and talking. Then he said, okay, do you want this job? And I went, what? He goes, do you want this job? I said, well, we just made that job up. He said, yeah. He said, would you like this job? And I said, 
You sure that's got enough work in that job? <laughs> I said, you just made that up. And he said, I think it's got enough work in that job. <laughs> so I said to him, can you wait till Friday? This was like the Wednesday. It's only like, now I'm going, he just made up a job for you. And you're saying, can you wait? Yeah. <laughs> I said, can you, can you wait? Can you wait till Friday? And he said, yeah. He said, but I want you to be honest with me. If you're going to take it, take as you really want it. He said, because if not, then I just won't hire. He said, but I don't want you to take it. And then you come and then you move on. He said, just make up, you know, decide what you want to do. So I remember going on the train and I wrote a pros and cons list. I went, yeah, I think I'll take the job. It's the best thing I ever did. He was my boss for like six years, Ian, Ian Scott. He was amazing. And before I left, my, my vision, of, well, even at that first interview, he said to me, I want you to become my right hand. He said, but you're going to have to prove to the rest of the organization that you can be my right hand. But he gave me that from the very, from the interview. And by the time I left, I was his right hand. And so when the firm kind of merged and everything, I just thought I needed a change. I've been there for six years by then. And um, there were some changes in the organization, but I felt I didn't want to stay with the firm. So I started looking around and then came across this company. And I remember reading some stuff about it. And I, look, I was looking at consulting because during the merger, I was in meetings with different consultants. I'm like, mm, what is this consulting thing? Because I loved finance, right? But they seems quite varied and they've got PowerPoint stuff they're putting up on the screen <laughs> and, you know, doing stuff. Hmm, I kind of like that. And I like to be different. So I thought, oh, accountant and a consultant. Don't, I haven't heard many people with those two skills. That's for me. And so I started looking at different consulting companies and then I came across this this advert for a consultancy firm that half of the things I didn't even understand what they meant, but I applied because I'm one of those people. I've even, I coach people also to, to go for interviews and get new jobs. That's one of the things I do in my career coaching. And I say, don't worry if you don't fit all of that. If you think you like the job and you understand half of it, put yourself in it. Let them tell you no, don't tell yourself no. Right. So I applied for this job and um, got the interview when something's for you, it's for you. Huh? Because I was in a, I was in a meeting at work and I had to leave to go to the interview. And the meeting was going on and 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 on. I was like, oh, I need to leave. And the partner's <laughs> going, where are you going? Uh, I just need to leave. <laughs> go to the doctor's. <laughs> in the middle of this thing, right? Anyway, so I ended up thinking, oh, I'm not going to go. And by now, the I should have been at the interview. The time's gone. So I thought they're not going to want me. So I called them and said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm like two hours late already. And they're like, no. Two can't. hours? Yeah, because I was still in the meeting. I'd been in the meeting. And I called and said, look, I know you're not going to want to see me. And I said, are you available? I'm like, yeah. And they said, well, still come. <laughs> so I was like, by then I was like, oh God, really? <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I went, went there. And during, while waiting to be interviewed, one of the guy, some of the guys were outside who worked for the consultancy. It was very small then. Maybe it was about seven people at the time it was, it was newly formed and he said oh we're doing it we're actually come back in and I said where have you been he goes Trinidad I goes Trinidad my mom's from Trinidad so I go into the interview we're talking da 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 my phone rings you know all the things like and I'm like but I was so like I'm just I'm, just, I'm not bothered really you know so there was just complete calm and during the interview they were telling me about the job and then I said and oh my mom's from Trinidad da 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 and they offered me the job because you want some Trinidad? No, what uh, I mean is... <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think that helped, if I'm honest. So, yeah, and yeah, they offered me the job. And I had to give three months notice, because by then I was senior manager at PwC. I had to give three months notice. They're like, no problem, we'll wait for you. So 
went to work for them and within three weeks of working with them, I was in Trinidad. And initially I came for two weeks, two weeks to come and just start a program with, with some colleagues and then come back there for two weeks. I said, will you stay for the end of the month? Yes, because I stayed for the end of the month. You think you can stay till Christmas because I came in the August. I said, yeah, okay, I'll stay till Christmas. Then they said, oh, well, the project's going to stay last until another, until December 2000. It would have been 2002 then because I came in 2001. Will you stay until the project finished? I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, and then 2002, they asked me, would I move over here? Well, technically I was already moved, but yeah. And that's kind of how it happened. So you really love Trinidad, huh? You really enjoyed yourself. I asked me, it was very lonely at first. I thought it would have been really easy. So when I thought, yeah, of course I'll go. I've got my bags packed, I'm off, I'm off, I'm gone. But it was difficult in the sense that I was in a new job, in a new country, a new career, new, new, new. And also at that time, I was not strong enough to show my vulnerability. So I wouldn't let anybody know that I, on a weekend, it was just like horrid. And I lived in the Hilton for a year and a half when I first came. Oh, you lived in the Hilton? Yes, right. Wow. And they asked me if I wanted to live in, in the West Moines in Oh, um, Riviera and all that. Yeah. Or if I wanted to live in the Hilton, one of the other guys lived there and I was like, no, I'll live here. But it, I had a suite that had a one, so it had a, there's, there's suites in, in the Hilton mm-hmm. that actually had their own kitchen. So they put you up in a suite for the Hilton for how long? A year and a half. Jesus. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was lovely. <laughs> so, and it's like having one bedroom apartment. You had your own kitchen. I had my own kitchen. I could add my own pots and stuff like that if I wanted to cook. You know, everything had separate. So it's like having a one bedroom apartment. You just happen to be living in the Hilton. No, that's some swag. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason for that, it wasn't the fact that it was the Hilton. It was the fact that I knew I was in a country that I didn't really know anybody. Even though I have family here, I wasn't close to them because I didn't grow up with my family here. I felt that if I had an apartment, once you shut the door, you're completely isolated. And like I said, I'm not, I wasn't going to, excuse me, can I come and have dinner at your house? So I thought if I'm in a hotel, then you can lease when you go and have breakfast, there's people around you. When you have dinner, there's people around you. You can go to the bar and have a drink and people, and then I'm kind of have strong interpersonal skills. So I made friends with everybody and, you know, it's like you were coming home. Might sound a bit sad to people listening, but at the time it was really important just to feel you had some connection, you know? So that was the reason. All right, so we're in Trinidad. We're working in Trinidad. We're enjoying ourselves. We, we're at home. We're still living in Hilton or we finally move out to Hilton? I was there for a year. Eventually I moved out. All right, eventually moved out. So at, at what point did you decide who was going to... Corporate Trinidad cannot pay me. I mean, at that time you're living in Hilton. Of course, you're making pounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't be making teaching. No, exactly. Yeah, not at all. Right, so eventually that, that, I mean, that well runs dry. Well, what happened was I decided that... I was with the company that I used to work for for six years and I decided that I, it was time for me to move on. So to be honest, I started to look in Trinidad for a job, right? And um, as she's just said, I was earning pounds and living in Trinidad and I could not find a job. In line with, <laughs> not so much pounds, but in line with what I was, you know, what I was used to being paid. And I would go for interviews quite high managerial jobs and I'd say well, they said what should, you know what do you want to just salary and I'd say it and they're like the CEO doesn't even get paid <laughs> you know <laughs> and I was like oh okay and so I started thinking well I'm not ready to leave I'm not going to start a job at a salary that I was earning when I was 21 
so what going to do then? So I said, well, I could start my own business. But when the thought came out, it was scary. I was like, oh, no, I don't know about that. So it took me a while to kind of build up the courage to do it. But I felt like, well, I don't know how else to stay in Trinidad. I can't work for that. So I'm, I just can't. Because <laughs> we have to live in Hilton. Yeah. You? <laughs> <laughs> now, by the way, there's no Hilton all days. But it was, yeah, you know, like, I, you know, I was earning that when I was 23, you know. Um, but of course, not just in this different country, different, you know, but just that, like, no. So I said, well, okay, I'll do my own thing. And I was like, well, if it does, and my, that time I thought, well, if it doesn't work, I'm an accountant. I can go back home and get a job. And the funny thing is, I think if I hadn't been in Trinidad, I do believe everything happens for a reason and destiny and everything. I was corporate through and through. You could have cut me, would have been blue blood, you know, corporate through and through. If I'd been home, I doubt I would have started a business. But here I was like, I don't know what else to do. So I think I'm going to do that. And after getting over the fear of it, I did it. So really and truly, you got into entrepreneurship. You started your own business because you needed to maintain your life. And you need to maintain that income. Yeah, it wasn't about, oh, I think I want to work for myself. or It was more, I want to stay in Trinidad. I can't find a job that would pay me what, I'm, would, what I believe I'm worth. So I either go home or decide how you're going to stay here. And that's what took me down this path. So I don't consider myself a natural entrepreneur. You know, there's a lot of people who are just born, you know, they were selling bottles as a kid and making, you know, millions and stuff like that. I wouldn't sell a bottle. I'd give it to you. <laughs> all right. So how did you go about doing this? Because I mean, all right. So you're incorporated with a transition out of that. You transitioned into starting your own business. But I mean, obviously when you start your own business initially in the first six months, a year, however long, you're really not going to make that much money. That's true. Now, remember, I'm an accountant, right? So <laughs> before I left the company I was working for, I saved up a year's salary. Right. Oh yeah, of your UK salary, yeah, yeah, of a TT salary. And God, God is good, right? So I was like, how do I make more money? How can I save a year's salary? Hmm, in less than a year. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that and survive and live and da da da. And then in the company I was working for, all of a sudden this project appeared, and it, the skill set it wanted, it needed, was completely my skill set. It just had to put my name on the top of it and it would, look, it would have read like my CV. So did they take a blank sheet and write out everything? They, they must have done. So the company initially put it out and I said, look, I'm not traveling again because I was the one who was traveling. I worked in Jamaica, I'd, worked in, I'd gone to Canada to work. I was like, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I remember the managing director saying, but I wasn't asking you to. I said, I'm just telling you, I'm not going to another place. I want to stay and just be settled for a little while. Because I'm not asking you, but I'm letting you know I'm not going. But over the weekend, the curiosity got me and I started to look at this posting. And it was in Equatorial Guinea, didn't know where that was. But it was for the oil company. And because it wasn't an attractive for people to go, because it was 20 days, 28 days on, 28 days off. Basically, they did a, a huge uplift in your salary in order to go. And basically, I was like, and also I said to God, I wanted to work out how I was going to get, make more money and how I was going to have more time to work out how I was going to do this business. And then this position pops up and I get time because it's 28 days off, 28, 20 days on, and I get an uplift in salary. And I was like, thank you, God. So I remember writing to the managing director at the weekend going, okay, this is me. No one has broken into my email. I am interested in this position. <laughs> 
after you had vociferously <laughs> told yeah. him I'm not going exactly in a big team meeting as well no one has hacked into my email it is me <laughs> alright so you go there and what happens <laughs> now that was an interesting experience one of the reasons for wanting to take the assignment other than the two things I just said I thought it'd be really great to be able to use my skills with African people that I can help to make their lives better. That was my one, one of the major ones for me for really wanting to go. But what was interesting, I ended up actually working how it's there. It's actually on the site of the oil company. So you're actually very divorced from <laughs> the locals. And I worked predominantly with the expats. So there were some locals, but the ratio. But that was really interesting. If you've seen the movie, well, not the movie, the series, MASH. Okay, quite, if not, you're, you're, you're too young, right? Uh-huh. So it's basically, look, look it up in your Google searches. It's basically Americans in an army base in Vietnam, all right? God, that makes me feel so old. You don't know what MASH is. Anyway, so it was a bit like that. It was like we lived on this base. Outside you had, you know, dirt roads and people who hadn't got any food and, okay, not all the place, but, you know. And then you, inside you've got, as you open the gates, the robes are smooth, They've got like Westmoreland type houses inside. And it, the contrast, it was just, you know, there was electricity, you know, 24-7 and outside there, electricity, electricity for like three months. It was a really strange, yeah, environment. And so you'd have a lot of the expats inside, so they had expat parties. And, and it was just like, it was a completely different world. It was really amazing, interesting, crazy at the time, you know? Yeah. How long were you there? Yes. So 28 days on, 28 days off for a year. And I remember one, I used to fly from Trinidad to London. Stay a couple of days in London. That was a beautiful. I went home every month then. Stay at home for a couple of days then fly to Paris, then fly to Equatorial Guinea. But I remember one day, I think I was flying. I must have been flying straight, not going to London. And I remember landing. And for a little while I was disorientated. And I couldn't remember whether I was going, coming, or even what country I was in. I was like, okay, where am I? Where am I going? I thought, you can't say something. She's what country I'm in? It really like, you know, so it took me a little while. But yeah, you just kind of get dazed. And, but yeah, but that was, yeah, it was interesting. It's like, I do a long, you know, had to get to work. It takes you two days, two day commute. <laughs> two day commute. <laughs> <laughs> but amazing, ex- honestly, some amazing experiences. Met some amazing and worked with some amazing people. Okay. So how do we, I mean, how do we get BPD associates? Now? Yeah, so... Decide now it's time to kind of move on. Save up. Lucky with that. God giving me that position. and so that about three years now. You save now. <laughs> <laughs> now, it could have lasted three years or maybe even more. And yes, I'm an accountant, but you know, it's a bit of like cobbler shoes. Mm-hmm. So I started the business thinking I knew what I was doing. Went and got myself a little office and basically sat there making up things different programs for who I don't know, but this program, that program, this program, that program. And yeah. And forgot that I was not earning any money, but I was continuing the same lifestyle. Right. So when you initially started the business, um, did you conceptualize what the vision would want to be and and everything? No, I didn't do a business plan. I didn't do any of that. And the business originally was called Get Started Today. That's the name of the original name of the business. I love it. My initials, GST. Okay, yeah, they registered and everything. Yeah, yeah. Get started get today. Get started today. Okay. 
And I, I wanted to be a coaching business. That was the original intent was to be a coaching business. Someone said, well, how are you going to make money out of that? Just coaching. And I was like, yeah, I can. And normally I don't know people dissuade me, but then it's, I'm kind of, oh, maybe not then, you know? So then, yeah, I just played around for a while. And then luckily somebody I knew, knew somebody who knew somebody who wanted some training and I managed to do that. And then Equatorial Guinea needed another consultant. So they reached out to me. So I worked with them for a while. So things were, were good. And then 2009, I thought, oh, that's okay. I can come and get on with my business friend. I don't want to be in Africa anymore. Not realizing that I actually didn't have a business. I had a client. Rude, rude, rude awakening. And things then just tanked. No, there was no work. There was nothing. Money started running out. And it really was a survival mode in the sense that it got to a point where the bank was calling me up for, for my mortgage. I didn't know where things were coming from. And I was like, I wonder if I should, should get a job, you know? And like, something was like, no, no. And I don't know, there was just something inside me that said, this can work. I said, what? <laughs> but someone saying, this can work. And I felt like, kept feeling like I was bringing out an invention and the wheels would fall off. But I'd be sticking it back going, no, it can work, it can work. And even my family were going, you're an accountant, get a job. And I'm like, no, no. And it got to a place where, yeah, I started to realise that who was really in charge and it wasn't me. And it was a very humbling moment. And I basically said, listen, God, if you want to take it all away, you can. Take it all away. But I know there must be something more. But I don't want you to. I kept saying that. I personally don't want you to. But if you must. And then it was like I was just being tested. And slowly work started to come. Work started to come. And then it just it did a complete 180. Um, so even when it was like being scared and everything, I was still, I think I'd written the book around then. So that, that gave, not having work gave me time to write the book. Um, and then that gave me a platform to speak on. And I was still kind of, networking and doing things. So we've got to remember that when you're having, when you're starting a business or even when you're in business for a while, you have to keep remembering to plant those seeds, to sow those seeds. And yeah, sometimes we're going to have duvet days or blanket days, whatever we call them in Trinidad. But you've got to remember to get back up, get back up and really believe in what you're doing. Because I think that's really what carried me through. And that's why I talk about passion to profitability. If I was doing something that I was not passionate about, I would have packed that up, left it along. But there was something in, there was like, when you do something you're passionate about, when you are tired, your passion slaps you in the face, throws water on you and says, come on, we've got stuff to do. If you're doing something you don't enjoy, you're not doing that. The thing is lying next to each other and going, we're not going anywhere today. You know, so that's why I think it's really, really important. <laughs> really, really important. You just want you're passionate about because your passion will drag you to the places you don't want to go. The passion will make you do the things you don't want to do because it wants to stay alive because of you and vice versa. So I think that's what's really, that's why I talk about passions to profitability because you have to have, I see people who, are not passionate what they do. And the, and the classic example is when they've started something, they stopped it, they started, they stopped it, they started, they stopped it, they started, they stopped it. Stop, stop, stop doing that. If you're chasing money, go and get a job. Put yourself out of the misery. But also remember, when you do something that you are passionate about, it's going to take time. And don't chase the money. Focus on what that thing is that you want to bring to the world. And if you focus on that and really home in on what that is and give it your all, the people who are attracted to that 
will be then attracted to you. And that's when it, the profit starts to happen. And the profitability is not just about money. When you're in that space, when you are just operating from your core, from your spirit, the profit comes from being abundant in mind, abundant in joy, abundant in love. That's where the profitability comes from. It's not just a money thing. So people think passion is probably, oh, it's just money. It's not. It's profitable in all the areas of your life so that you can achieve your version of freedom, whatever that is. Good, good. <laughs> that was the passion speaking then. Yeah, no, the, the passion definitely took over there. But so, okay, I guess my question would be, how did you know what it was that you were passionate about? Because the thing that you ended up being passionate about is not the thing that you had been doing for however many years. It's not the thing that you were trained to do. Okay, I'm glad you say that. So one of the things that I'm doing, when I do workshops and stuff for around passion is this. A lot of people think your passion is about the thing you do. You know, you were an accountant, you enjoy accounting, you're no longer doing that. If you remember, the reason I went into, account, into finance was not because of that job. I went into it because of the flexibility of that job, right? So one of the things I am passionate about is flexibility and freedom. That is my passion, flexibility and freedom. So... When I talk about passions to profitability, the passion is the essence of your passion, not the vehicle. Most people think the passion is the vehicle. So finance, football, whatever. They think that's the passion, but it's not. So when I do a workshop, I will normally say, so what would you do for 365 days without getting paid and why? If somebody says lead on that coach. Oh, and that's what I say. You cannot stay at home in bed watching TV. You have to be contributing in some way. So I do catch that one, right? You have to be contributed in some way. And then someone will say, oh, what about paying my bills? And I say, but also your bills are being paid. So your bills are being paid, but you're not getting paid for your time. Right? So your money worries are not there. So what would you do if you could do anything? What would you do? For 365 days with no, there's no weekend. And why? And the important part is the why. Because people, so when I've done this, I remember the one workshop I did it, there were two people, one, a woman and a man, and they both said football. And I asked why football? One was because he liked camaraderie, the winning teamwork. And she liked football from a premiership perspective because of logistics and how that could all be done. Now, interesting, she worked in logistics, right? And he was a, a manager. So I said to him, your passion, you thought, or you thought that it was football is actually deeper than that. For her, it was logistics. And I say, so look, you're actually working logistics. So you're actually already living your passion. You just didn't realize it. And when I'm able to work with people and get them to see that, it makes them look at the work they do in a very different way. And therefore, it's like you can live your passion every day and you can live your passion Every day, whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee, it's not just limited to an entrepreneur. You know, they have these um, personality tests and stuff online. And if you take enough, if you know the outcome you want to get for yourself, if you know, you think your parents tell you, you should be a, a bank or a consultant or whatever it is, and you know the answers that you, got, that you need to put to get that, you could somehow kind of convince yourself, hey, that's what I really want to do. But really and truly, that's not what you want to do. So how do you cut through that and say, okay, what do I really want to do? Because uh, many people don't actually no. know 
what they want to do. Well, I would rephrase that. Many people don't believe they know, but they actually do know. Right. So what I would tend to, what I found when I was, when I first started the business and was coaching, especially, and it was more career coaching than entrepreneurship at the time. Well, I'd ask people all the time, what, where they see themselves in the future. And nine times out of 10, they wanted to have their own business. Right. But would do nothing about it. And I used to do an exercise where I used to get them to visualize, visualize your life 10 years from now and pretend we are 10 years from now. Ten, we are 10 years on from now. So it's like, hey, Zara, where are you? Great to see you. I haven't seen you for 10 years. What's going on? You know, and sometimes they would flit in and out of, well, I think I was, well, how do you mean you think? It's, we're 10 years on. What are you talking about? Oh, and then they would get into role. And then things would start just coming out about what they were doing and how they were doing it and how they're successful. And then they'd be like, where did that come from? I said, because you got out of your own way, because you do know. Now there's things inside us that try and hold us back, whatever, but we know what we want to do. It's just that we're scared to allow ourselves sometimes to go there because we think it might not happen or we think it will happen. We don't want to do with it. So is that where you get them to take deep breaths and everything, close their eyes and kind of unveil everything step by step? Yeah, but we do it like a conversation. So I'll say, you know, get, leave them for a bit to really sit and think about it and then just have a dialogue. So it's not they've mapped it all out. It's just I'm pretending I've just met them after 10 years. And so I'm firing these questions at them and they haven't got time. They haven't got time to, to like process it and go, well, that's not happening. They start going, yeah, well, actually, now I just came back from Zaire and I'm having this, this, that, and that. And, you know, oh, yes, I'm married and I've got three kids and da, 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 da. And, yeah, the business is, is amazing. I've got three locations and la, 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 la. And then, like, after, like, well, where did that come from? I said, but it's inside you. And we wanted doing it as a, as a workshop. I did it as a whole room. And at the end of that particular session, one of the participants, and it was, it was a school, it was, a young, it was youth at that time, she said, miss, miss. I said, yeah. She goes, I overdreamt. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I saw myself in this huge house. I had a really amazing business and everything was fantastic. And I said, you didn't overdream. You just got out of your way. And I think it's interesting that you said that that's what's happening with the youth as well, because when you talk about it in terms of speaking about your dream as though anything is possible, it always reminds me of working with children because children have never been told, well, I mean, some, most children don't have barriers mentally as to what they can be, you know, so you ask them what they want to be and they say they want to be, you know, like a ballet astronaut, mm-hmm. scientist, but then to them, it's yes. a completely valid answer yeah. because I can be whatever I want. Exactly. And so, and I think that that's interesting because it's only as you get older, you sort of feel these barriers being put up one after the other. And it's so interesting that now as more and more people are trying to determine sort of what their passion is and where they really want to be in life, you then have to go through the process mm-hmm. of sort of breaking those barriers down one by one. Exactly. But even think about, we're told as kids don't daydream, right? But when you go into management, you're told to vision. Hello? What's going on there? <laughs> exactly. And you're told to let your mind go to a place, a different place where you can imagine whatever is possible. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't even know what that is anymore because you think within a particular framework. And I actually, I think one of the most effective visualization exercises that I've had to do through like these types of workshops is saying, um, okay, don't think about what you're doing, how much you're being paid. Think about what your day looks like. Mm -hmm. So you open your eyes and where are you? What does it feel like? What's Mm -hmm. the weather like? What's your first thing you see? And it's interesting because as people walk through that, then it's easy to say to them, okay, well, how does this match to these other things? And I think that one interesting thing 
what you're talking about is the idea that passion isn't a thing. It's not the thing that you do. It's sort of the overall essence and feeling of it, which is interesting because I think more and more now, especially in this sort of the millennials have been sort of tagged as this generation, which is supposed to follow their passion. But the idea being that passion is a thing. You have to find the thing that you want to do and then find that thing. And if that thing doesn't work out, sometimes it devastates people. But if they're following an essence, a yes. feeling, an experience, then it's different. Exactly. And I think so I think the kind of the world has been given a disservice when they've made it this tangible thing when actually it's not that. That's just the vehicle. And the vehicle can change. Right. Nice. All right. So your passion has led you nine years after moving to Trinidad to release your first book. Mm. The amazing race to, to entrepreneurial freedom. freedom. So tell us about that process. How long did you spend writing that book? How did you conceptualize it? Three months it took to write the manuscript, actually. Three months? Yeah. People take longer than that to do the MBA. I know. Three months. It was kind of, in, I think it was inside me, you know. But also how I did it was, at the time I was, I was training for a marathon. So hence the, kind of the name of the, the book. And it kind of inspired me. It was on a, actually I'd, I used to have a, attend a mastermind in the US, right? Some of the masterminds became really good friends. And we were driving from, I think, New York to Philadelphia or something. This was with Claudine. And I told her I wanted to do a book, write a book. And so during that drive, we just conceptualized the book, right? So it became the fact that when you want to start a business, you can't just sprint. It's a process. You don't just wake up one day one and just run a marathon. And so the book itself... It doesn't have chapters. It has miles. It has 26.2 miles as a marathon. And because I'm a coach, it's written in a very coaching style. So I didn't want a a book about entrepreneurship that was stiff. So it's it's got a lot of my story in there and things I've done right and things I've done wrong. And each part, I kind of say, okay, I'm talking. Okay, enough about me. Over to you. And so there'll be some coaching questions about that particular mile and then there's little water bottles because you're having a water break. Um, I attempt at being creative. All right, coach. <laughs> and then it's kind of really written in three phases. And I've, I've kind of used myself for the example, like get yourself ready first. So it's three phases. First part, get yourself ready. The second part, get the business ready. And the third part, transition from employee to entrepreneur. And I found that those are the three main phases because not of times when people think about starting a business, they focus purely on the business. And I would say it's like you have this idea for the business. It's like you've got an idea for this dream car, right? So you save up loads of money for this dream car. It's fantastic. Then the person brings it, the dealership brings it and it's outside your house and you look out the window and you see it coming and you run out and the keys in the engine and you're hearing it purring and you jump and you go, I can't drive. But you know what? I've saved up all this money the keys in the ignition, I'm going. And some people crash and boom before they even get in the driveway. And I kind of thought that's a bit like what happens with business. People have this idea and they're gone, and the, but they don't even know what they're doing. So the most important thing is getting yourself ready. And those parts of that getting yourself ready are what are you passionate about? And what is your vision? But not just for the business. What is your vision for your life? And how does the business support? Because what tends to happen, you know, what you focus on grows. So a lot of times people have this amazing business, but they have no partner. Their children hate them. You know, the parents are maybe dead and gone and they didn't realize. So 
focus really on what your vision is for your life, how the business is going to support you. Now, when you start, it doesn't look like that. At least you know that's where you want to take it. And then what's your relationship with money? Because a bad relationship with money is going to follow you. It doesn't change just because you've got a business. And then also, I also talk over there about saving up whatever you can. I I advocate a year, but not a year's salary. I I want to drill into that, right? (laughs) You see, put away a year's money. Not necessarily salary. Not salary. But your living expenses, your rent, your mortgage. All the things you you have to pay for. So, Georgina. Let's just assume that people in the Caribbean aren't working for pounds, right? Yes, yes. How do we save a year's worth of living expenses? Just like, I mean, how long we have to work to do that? Okay, that would depend on how much you earn. Right. That would depend on how much disposable income you have. Because it's not, so it's a really important point. It's not saving a year's salary. You have to first work out what are all the things that I have to pay for that people are going to chase me down for if I don't pay. Right. So normally, again, if I've done workshops, that people go, oh, cable, you don't need cable. You think you need cable, but actually you could cut your cable and you'd be fine. Right now. And now things have changed. You need Internet so you can stay you know, connected to the world, but you don't need cable. So we get sometimes I get fights with that. No, but cables are necessary. No, it's not. It's not a necessity. Right. So you actually go through the living expenses, things you have. So if you've got kids, maybe there's school fees. Of course, you've got to eat your rent or your mortgage, electricity, your phone bill. So what are those things? I call it create the skeleton. So come up with those things you have to pay. Then look up at what you actually earn. And normally there is a difference. In most instances, there is a difference. So therefore I say, okay, so now that you've seen that difference, what can you now start to save out of that disposable income you've got to build that saving. See, when I've done, I'm doing this a couple of times, we've gone, I haven't got any money, I haven't got any money. And then I went, I said, I will help you find money before we finish this workshop. Let's talk after this um, podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I will help you find money before we, and then I, like, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, oh my gosh, look how much money I can actually have because we spend it. We're in this kind of automatic spending. So I said, create the skeleton first. And then after you create the skeleton, see what you've got. And then you can, you can add cabling after if you want. But first do it without that. And then from that, see how much money you've got. And then see then from that how much you want to say. Because yeah, you don't want to live right now just on your skeleton. But at least you know what that looks like. And then say, maybe you eat out a lot, so you don't eat out as much. But there's ways that you can actually start saving the money without changing your lifestyle too much. But also what it helps you do when you first start your business, which I didn't do this, why I advocate that, get used to living on a bit less and also doing things slightly differently, at least for a time. Because if you do that, what normally happens when you start a business and you don't have a financial cushion, you and your business are fighting for the same money. I want to pay my bills. I want to buy supplies. Whereas if you put that cushion to look after yourself, and I advocate if you can for a year, for a year you haven't got to worry because the issue normally you have is, how am I going to pay myself? How am I going to live? You've done that already. You've got that. So you can sleep at night knowing you've got that money. And then whatever the business makes, the business can take that and keep going. So that's the important part with that, which a lot of us don't do. Okay. You also advocate for started as a side hustle on your side while building traction. I have to say, I must admit, I really don't like that word. You don't like side hustle? No. A side job? Yes. <laughs> I just find hustle to me is just chaotic and... I don't know. I know it's the, it's the term now, but it just really, it just really turns me off. I think it's, it's like grab anything, do anything, 
Yeah, a lot of buzzwords turn me off too. I get yeah, it. Yeah, it has a negative connotation for me. Yeah, so if you can, start building your business before you leave. So that way then you've kind of tested people want it. It's not just your mum and dad and your sister that wants it. And I think it's great because it's because you, they love you. And then because they're not the ones buying it, right? So if you can slowly start building a clientele, it proves to you that your business has value because people will pay for it. You also then, if you can start getting that regular, by the time you step out, you step on something solid rather than just an idea. All right. So one of my favorite tips that you give is that get comfortable talking about what you do. You know, a lot of people say, hey, my work speaks for itself. And he said, that is fine when you're in the corporate <laughs> world. But when you're working for yourself and nobody knows you, nobody's not hearing. Exactly. <laughs> nobody's hearing. And that was my lesson because I used to say that. My work speaks for myself. So anyone, when I was working in corporate and people start talking about themselves, I think they were boasting and I'd be like all judgmental and, you know. And I kept that mentality even when I started my business. Oh, I'm not, but you can't. You have to be able to talk to them. I can now say I'm an amazing coach. And I believe that. My clients believe that. It's not that I'm boasting about it. It's a reality. And I'm also in a place and being comfortable that if people think it's boasting, then that's okay. I'm all right with that. But you have to be in a place to talk about what you do, why you do it, who's it for. Because if you do not speak about it, how can the people you want to have it find you? And the other part, a lot of times people say they feel scared and don't want to talk about sales. And I said, but do you believe in your product? Do you believe in it? Yeah, I do. It's, and why are you doing this? Because it can really help people's lives. And da, da, da. I said, so why are you being so selfish? No, what? Why are you being selfish? Because there could be somebody maybe in this room or across the road who needs you and you are refusing to tell them because you're scared and they are suffering because you are not sharing. And that just gives a whole complete different paradigm shift. But how do you overcome that fear? So part of it is stop making it be about you. Because that's a lot of times is, oh, if I get rejected, oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, But it's not for you. It's for the other person. So one practice it to put a list of people you're going to call or going to speak to and set time to do that first thing in the morning and you can't do anything you enjoy until you've done it have an accountability partner says okay I'm going to make two calls tomorrow you check in with me I'm going to make those calls and it's practice slowly make one or make the easy call first and then the hard one later but it's it, you actually have to start doing it and if I'm honest I found it hard and sometimes I still don't like it but I know that I can't do what I believe I've been born to do if I don't speak. There you go. So it's all about transitioning to the mindset of mm. an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know? So one of the main things of that is that when you start your own business, the admin assistant is you. The secretary is you. The telephone operator is you. But that's why the you get a team. You get a team. Yeah. but That's why you got to give Zara a, a, a Craven Powerlunch t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's just getting used to the fact that you haven't got that backed up of everyone else behind you. That's one. Two, you are now in a place where regular money is not coming in, at least for a time. And you have to get comfortable with that uncertainty, but not paralyzed by the uncertainty. They're two of the main, the fact that these jobs are all yours. <laughs> And then you're the just making time for those different parts of your role so you can get everything done. But I also say to people that when you first start a business, you think you're in the business of change management or you think you're in the business of 
selling shoes, but you're not. You're actually in the business of marketing and selling. It just happens to be that product. And I think if people, when they first start the business, they're the two most important roles. And if you can throw finance into, you know where your money is. But they are the two important roles. You've got to home in your marketing skills and your sales skills. Without those two, your business is not going to go anywhere. Do you think the marketing and selling is more important than the creation and perfection of the product itself? Oh, that's definitely. Look at, so I was going to call a product, but I won't. Look at the products, some products that are out there. They're not the greatest. Like KFC, that's not a healthy product. Coca-Cola, not a healthy product. Not maybe the best product on the world either, on the market either. But I was marvel at Coca-Cola. Everybody knows them. I'm sure a baby who can too knows Coca-Cola. How much marketing do they do? Tons of marketing. They don't go, oh, we, we, we're known, let's just rock back. No, they market all the time. You've got to keep yourself relevant. You've got to keep yourself in people's faces. You've got to, because there's always competition. So if you're not making yourself visible, and my definition of marketing, yes, you've got the four Ps and blah, 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 blah. But my definition of marketing is being visible to the people who need your product. If you're not doing that, how do they know to come and get you? And therefore, some products, you might look at a product going, my product's so much better than that. Why are people buying that? Because they know about it. So even a come to your question, you don't have to have the best product, but if you have really good marketing, that could outshine a really good product if the marketing is not there. Yeah, because that makes a lot of sense. And the thing <laughs> is, when you explain it that way, that makes more sense because so many people think, okay, no, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm very skilled. My product is amazing. It'll be fine. Once again, it'll either sell itself or it'll prove itself and it'll grow from word of mouth. And so many people believe that, you know, through word of mouth marketing, everything will happen. But I think that that's a very important point. And also the, the point in there that I think is more important is being able to identify who needs your mm. product. Because if you can't identify who you're trying to sell to, then you're diluting your efforts and taking away one of the many admin, secretary, finance, other exactly. roles that you have to be doing. And the other thing to be watchful for, if someone wants to start a business, I always say, well, who's your product for? Everybody. Okay, then. If your product's for everybody, we need to sit down and talk. Because if, if your product's for everybody, then actually it's for nobody. And the reason I say that is when you're marketing, you've got to be able to target. Now, over time, you can bring in everybody. Because, yeah, Coke has everybody. Is that, right? Well, does it? Someone who's a straight vegan, fully all athletic nonsense goes in their body. Coke is not for them. So there's always a market. So you've got to know who your, who your market is. So I so say start somewhere. Start small first. Build it. Get the name for it. Then you can start branching out. Also, when you first start, you haven't got that much money. So if you're trying to mass market everybody, that you're taking something tiny and trying to sprinkle it everywhere and that ain't going to work. If you can take what you've got and focus on one particular area, build that and then let it grow. So it's really important to know who your target market is. And I was, what I normally ask clients to do is to build what I call their avatar, right? So give it a name. It's Sarah. You know, she's a career professional. She's in a long-term relationship, but she's not yet married. She loves to go on holiday. She's a triathlete. She lives in a condo, blah, 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 blah. And the reason for doing that is that, so then when you start writing your marketing material, Sarah's in your head, you're writing to Sarah. And therefore when Sarah reads it, all the Sarahs read it, they know that's them. But when you do it, when it's for everybody, well, if you're a human being and you have two legs 
or whatever. You know, yeah, okay, I have that, but there's no pull for me. So right now I want to talk about another sort of avatar that's causing some problems, right? Mm -hmm. In October of 2018, you gave a TED Talk on remaining relevant with the rise of technology. And in that talk, you quoted at McKinsey and saying that by 2030, 800 million jobs will be lost or replaced at the hands of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. So knowing that, all right, in this year, 2019, how can we guard ourselves against that? How do we prepare for that? That's a really good question. And, and in the preparation for that talk, it got me scared, right? <laughs> That's kind of why I did the talk because I was like, I'm scared. I think people need to know that this the stuff's scary. Yeah, no, that was a scary talk. <laughs> the main things are it's really start being curious. Be curious about what is going on in technology because I wasn't. Technology and me are not really friends. Um, we're now kind of dating. So I was very ignorant. I didn't want to know about it. I didn't think I had to know about it. And then I started realizing, no, you need to know what's going on. So firstly, be curious about what technology is going on in your industry and how it is actually disrupting your career. So they're the first things, right? Then start looking into, especially now there's a lot of, look at the like large multinational companies and see what jobs they're recruiting for because they've done all the research already. Huh? So if they've done all the research, start looking at what they're recruiting for because then that's telling you where their thoughts are. And then start looking at maybe how you can bring on those skills. When I've done the research, a lot of it is moving towards the softer skills or what I, I've never liked them called soft skills. What I've, something I read the other day said they called them, I think, essential skills. I was like, I much prefer that. Um, really start looking at like strategic thinking, emotional intelligence, judgment. Start looking at those and building those skills because at the moment, at least for now, the robots are not there. So those are the skills you start to start working on. And something else I didn't looked at when I was researching that the blue collar job for the 21st century is going to be coding. So maybe looking at some programs around coding. I haven't done that myself yet, but looking at some programs around coding and I think they're making them more simpler now as well. So just some more technology-based ones, especially big data, understanding that analysis skills, because that's where we're going, that's where our judgment and reasoning comes in. And that's again, looking at seeing what technology is going on in your actual field and then just being curious and being very open-minded too. Because a lot of times I did a talk the other day for the ACCA and Someone in the audience is saying, well, we're in a third world. Why should we worry about, why should we worry about this technology? We're, we're here. I said, yeah, but technology is there and your employer is eventually going to use it. And you won't have time. You'll be scrambling. So don't worry. Don't think about it. It's just over there. It's not going to be here. It's going to be here eventually because one of the major things is because it's going to cost them less money as a driver. So you mentioned that people subconsciously know what they want to do. They know where they want to be. And everything, but they're, they're these conscious inhibitors yeah. that, that block them, right? So within your coach, and I know you coach by asking questions as opposed to actually imposing your yes. opinions and everything. So what kind of questions you should be thinking about to uncover what it is we know we want to do and how do you face it? So I'm trying to think how the best way to answer that question. There's a process, but there's not a process in the sense that you work with what's in front of you. So there's no like set of questions. Okay, I've got my questions. So I'm going to pull them out. Yeah. It really depends how the person shows up, where the conversation goes. As a coach, you allow the person to drive the conversation. So they might say something. Like I was having a coaching session with someone this week 
and she's already in business, but she's find it difficult to get into the selling part because she doesn't want to get negative feedback and stuff like that. And while she's talking and I'm listening to her and she's saying, but I want to move forward and I'm caught up in getting stuck. And slowly I just said, I said, and she kept saying, well, I keep thinking about this. And I keep thinking, about I said, well, when's the last time you actually had feelings? And she said, sorry. I said, well, you talk a lot about what you're thinking. But when's the last time you tapped into how you felt about it? And she said, oh, well, actually, I have kind of been working on that because I don't feel. So the reason I'm saying that is because there's no particular set of questions. It's really being present. Like when you're coaching, you have to be so present that you're listening to the conversation and seeing where there's maybe disconnects. That the, even the person doesn't know there's disconnects. And then saying, oh, can I just ask you about this? Something intuitive kind of comes up and you ask about that. And then the person might go, oh, how did you see that? But because you're listening. So there's no set of questions I can pull out and go, I have to ask these things. Now, I'll start off a, a session by asking them to tell me about themselves, what the issue is and whatever. But then after that, I kind of follow them. Anyone listen, I think that's so airy-fairy, but it really, the answer is it really depends where they come. Some people, I can tell if they're a bit, don't need to like to be pushed. So you're kind of coming a different way. There's so many different techniques. You be, the most important thing, you have to be so present. I remember having one coaching session. This was years ago. This person was kind of going all over the place and, and I, to, I was so present. I was like, at the end of the coaching session, I have to remember, I did not even know what I'd even asked her. I was so present in the conversation. And she said, that was so amazing. Thank you. I just uncovered so much. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was so in it that I kind of merged myself with her kind of thing just to be able to stay with her, you know? So I can't explain that. That's the way I coach. Well, as we um, get ready to almost wrap up, I just want to know, do you have a, a favorite failure story? That failure story you say, ah, boy, thank God I had that failure. Yeah. I kind of alluded to it earlier. With the fact that when like, the bank was calling and I kind of felt like everything was just completely destroyed. And if I had allowed myself to succumb to it, I wouldn't be sitting here now. And I came very close to that. I woke up to the fact that, as earlier, that I realized that I hadn't, I wasn't in charge. And if, I allowed myself to trust whatever that force is. I saw instances in the past where things had been dire and they turned. And I was like, well, okay, if that happened in the past, why would that be different now? And if I am to fail, then I surrender to that because there's going to be something better. So I got to the place where failure, if it came, was okay because that's what was supposed to happen. Now it took, it was a lot to get to that place. And, and I was, if I'm really honest, I was kind of at rock bottom. But like I say, sometimes we get taken to a place that the only place you can do is look up. So that I would say was where I saw a big change. But if I think about a failure that became positive, but it was more an employee type. When I was at PwC, I went for the, the position of senior manager and I didn't get it. And I was devastated. But then I was like, I fuck right at work, you have to leave because that's just going to be embarrassing. And when my boss told me that I didn't get the job, I had tears and I had to run to the bathroom. And it wasn't because I thought I was so great. It was that I'd worked so hard and I just couldn't, 
couldn't understand how comes I didn't get this job. And everyone had already assumed I was operating at that level already. So it was a lot of embarrassment and, and I was devastated. And my boss said to me, he couldn't understand how I didn't get it either because he wasn't on the interview panel. And he gave me, he said, I'm so sorry. He goes, he gave me a £7,000 pay rise. He said, you should have got that job. I don't know why, because I'm going to give you a £7,000 pay rise. And I said, but I don't want the money, Ian. He said, I know, but I don't know what else to do. Anyway, I went home, still really upset. And then it slowly dawned on me. He had to get that £7,000 raise approved. So I must be really good at what I do. I might not have got that job, but they're not going to approve an increase of that in your body. So you have to be good at what you do. So if I'm that good at what I do, then maybe I don't have to stay. So it was interesting what was, came to sort of say, oh, we value you, we appreciate you, actually helped me to see that I could do much more. So does Ian regret giving you that pay rise now? No. We still talk today. We still talk today. Because it didn't, it didn't happen like straight away. I actually ended up going on and getting the promotion. And that was the other thing he said to me. He said, well, look, you're going to go for it again and you'll get it and you'll have more money. And I was like, Ian, the money's not important. But then by then I was like, oh. But yeah, that, it really just opened my eyes to, well, you must really be good. Because you know, you, you self-doubt yourself. Even though you're working hard, you're working hard, you kind of start and you're like, but no. And so it's that failure, I was able to turn it into something positive. But that, that, that hit me in the gut. All right. Georgina, where can we find you? Where can we find this passion to profitability expert? We need some coaching. Lovely. So you can find us at B as in business, P as in people, D as in development, associates with an S.com. So that's bpdassociates.com or Facebook, The Amazing Race to Entrepreneurial Freedom. All right, all right. So Georgina, before you wrap, I want to give you open mic, open forum, open platform to say anything you want to say that you feel we didn't cover today that you want to leave the audience with. I think, you know what, just find what makes you happy. And I don't, I'm not just saying a job, just life. Really think of what is, and you mentioned this, but what would your ideal day look like? Allow yourself to dream on it. And then see what pieces of it you can implement in a short space of time and start slowly and eventually give yourself the latitude to do more and more. I think that's what I'd say. Excellent. That works for me. Thank you. And live your passion. Oh, <laughs> Podcast world, there you have it. From passion to profitability with Georgina Terry Cohen. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at CaribbeanPowerLunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Sarah. This was fantastic. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Georgina, coach. Fantastic. I loved it. I loved the conversation. I like talking. <laughs> you like talking. It was great. And the chips were good too. Yes, yes. Those sweet potato <laughs> chips. Yes, yes. Podcast World, Cabin Studios, we are out. Season four finale. <laughs>